So, you know, uh, oftentimes the music in a church, uh, the, the worship music that we sing, and then usually uh, the special music that, that is sung, it's, it's all designed uh, and all intended. And the, in fact, everything, the prayers, the music, the message, all that kind of stuff is really designed to turn our heart to Christ uh, in each of those elements of a worship service do that in a different kind of sort of way. So uh, singing uh, the choruses that we sang this morning and then hearing Stacy sing reminded me of what is going on in Asbury down in, in, down in Kentucky. That, so if any of you were kind of feeling that pull and that tug uh, in the music this morning, just know that I think, what, for the last two weeks, uh, there's been basically a revival going on in Asbury College uh, where they had a normal chapel. They have a chapel three times a week, as many Christian schools do. And in the, during the, the course of that chapel, <clears throat> uh, and I don't know how this, you know, I don't know how this was, uh, how it transpired, but during the course of that uh, chapel, one young man stood up and he began to share about the sin that he struggled with in his life. And so all of the components of that chapel came together and in many respects coalesced themselves and he felt the complete freedom to stand up and share some very painful private things about his life and it was as it was as if something ignited, and the Holy Spirit just descended in that place. And now they have people traveling from all over the world just to go and to see the Holy Spirit manifest Himself in a powerful way uh, in that place. So it wasn't. Uh, <clears throat> You know, it wasn't anything that was um, um, set up. It wasn't like, we're going to have a revival meeting, and then, you know, you kind of force the hand of the Holy Spirit to, and, but that's not what happened. It was all very spontaneous and in God's timing. But that doesn't mean that isn't anything that shouldn't, that that, that isn't something that, that any one of us shouldn't desire in our own life, if not in our own church. And so, uh, you know, and so in part, you know, this series that I'm doing really is designed to revive us in our faith, revive us in our mission, in our purpose uh, as believers and so, you know, every Sunday that we come together, as all these components are arranged, in whatever way each of those, those things speak to you, allow them to speak as powerfully as they possibly can. Um, because I, as, a, as I, I stand back there, usually during the worship time, prayer time, and, and uh, music time, and it's gratifying for me to see people who lift their hands or close their eyes, maybe put their head back and just praise and just immerse themselves 
in the music or in the prayer. As a pastor, I'm just telling you, I would not be opposed. I would be delighted if during any part of that worship service, somebody wanted to come up and just kneel at the altar and pray. That would be a thrilling thing. Not because you're trying to demonstrate how spiritual you are, but because for some reason kneeling at the altar while the prayers are going or the music going and feeling. I remember when I was at St. Stephen's, I used to worship there. Have any of you ever worshipped at St. Stephen's before? In So maybe you'll, Donna, you'll remember this, but one of the most delightful and powerful experiences I ever had in the whole of my church experience was when they had what they called the Eucharist. Sometimes I call it the Eucharist, but the Lord's, uh, you know, the Lord's Supper or Communion. And they would get you up out of your seat and you would walk forward and, and they had, their altar was like, I mean, their altar is like from that wall to here. You, you know, the, the, the kneeling altar is right there and then there are other sections that you can go. And so I loved, loved to get as close to that altar as I possibly could and up the, the front of the altar, they had all of the apostles, the, the wooden statues of all the apostles. And they had this almost like soft golden light that came down. It was beautiful illumination. And you could smell, they used real wine there, but you could smell the wine and you could smell the candles and you worshiped with all five senses. And I think that's something that we've lost in the Protestant church. You know, the worship of all five senses. I think there's something to that. I think that's what happened in the Old Testament temple. But I think that we've kind of lost that a little bit in our experience. And so uh, I just sort of felt like I was, you know, ensconced, immersed by, you know, all of that around me. And I just loved it. And it was, uh, I I would, this is not a lie, I would sometimes hold back and let somebody go before me so that if I saw another space was going to open that was closer or deeper into the altar. Donna, did you ever have that experience there? And so the music would be playing, and, you know, you'd hear, uh, they they called them um, celebrants, but they would have different people, uh, you know, dispensing uh, the, 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 you know, the wine and the bread, and so you'd hear them in the background. You'd hear the music in the background. You'd, you'd, you'd all the the lighting and the and the the imagery and the smell. It was just glorious. And I think it's going to be like that in heaven. So, um, so what I'm saying to you is, is that you know there is freedom in Christ. And you know, often you know, no lie, people can be pretty bizarre in a worship experience. We're not looking for that, but we are looking for that the freedom. Uh, that if you ever want to do that, you feel free to do that. So in any case, uh, as I um, continue on with the series, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be spending some time in various texts, but um, a lot of it will be um, John and then some other ones. So um, just to reorient you, the, the two primary texts that we've studied so far in this series about redeeming our time we're the parable of the talents from Matthew, and then we are now in the I am the vine and you are the branches. Now, when I was in seminary, we had this thing that we had to do where we had to kind of, it was called diagramming a text, which sounds kind of cold and maybe scholastic or whatever, but it is, 
it is helpful, especially if a text is kind of dense, you know, like there's a lot going on in that text. If you can get in there and sort of outline it, it can be really helpful in understanding what the text is getting at. And so there are two that I want to share with you this morning, and I'm just going to spend a moment on each of these, but uh, I think it helps us to get uh, at a more full understanding of what's going on in John in in a very succinct way. So there is a thematic diagram of John chapter 15, verses 1 through 9, verse 16. There's a, a thematic thematic one, and I'm just going to share that with you. So <coughs> the themes of that diagram would be uh, <coughs> that there is sovereign ownership by the master or the father, that we are chosen by the master for service, that we are specially crafted and designed by the Father. He crafted and designed. There's no, there isn't anyone here that is the way they here are here. I remember and I I remember I remember being in high school. And you know, in middle school and high school, uh, if your ego can survive it, you're doing really well because it's just such an incredibly competitive place socially. And and for most of my middle school and high school uh, uh, years, I, I did not necessarily believe that I had a whole lot to offer. And I would always compare myself to many other people, you know, somebody who, who was more athletic, somebody who was more intelligent, somebody who could do these things or could do those things. And I, and I, I used to whine and complain to God a lot about that. And... Um, and I always sort of felt like, you know, things were a bit unfair in that regard. And so um, one day, <laughs> so I can remember this as clearly now as I'm standing here, I was mowing grass, my neighbor's grass, and I was praying while I was mowing. I don't know if you ever do that, but, you know, it was a big yard, so I had time to. And while I was praying to him, I was saying, you know, that, you know, I was frustrated that I wasn't able to do these things or those things or whatever. And, uh, and very clearly, God broke through that monologue of mine as I kind of bitterly complained to him about that. And he said, I have made you a certain way for a certain purpose. Now, you need to find that out and do it. And that was a watershed event in my life. While I'm pushing this self-propelled mower down this ground, through this grass. And, uh, you know, I mean, I guess God can speak to you anywhere. He spoke to me there. And it was a watershed moment in my life. And so from that point on, I began to try to find ways that he had made me in a particular way, designed me in a special manner, and to do that thing for the rest of my life. It's a true story. So it is with you. And not just by how you've been designed and what your skills and gifts are, but the resources that you have as well. So, uh, so thematically, we are purposed to produce fruit, that we are cultivated or pruned by God uh, it, so that we produce more fruit, that he brings everything to pass in our lives, certain dates, places, and abilities to make all that happen, 
that, that is only successful, successful service is only through Christ. We cannot produce fruit apart from Christ. And that we are judged and rewarded by the quality or the amount of fruit that we produce. And so, you know, it should really be an important time in everyone's life on a yearly or quarterly basis. Exactly what am I doing with my life and how much fruit am I producing? I mean, what, what's happening with me? Is it really happening? And then finally, you know, you know, he ends in, in, in verse 16 with, look, you didn't choose me. I, I chose you. I appointed you. I appointed you. Did you ever have an appointment that you had to go to? And once you got to the appointment, you were confused about what the appointment was for? Or once you got there with that appointment, you decided you wanted to do something else? Now, I will say that the lockers, for example, have a tendency to go to the wrong weddings, so sometimes they go to one like a month early or a month late. Is that true, <laughs> Bonnie? <laughs> so anyway, so that they miss that kind of appointment, you know. But and so it happens to, to the best of us. But I'm just saying, it would be if we, if a, if a matter as a matter of purpose in our life, if we didn't fo- follow through the appointment that is ours, then it just looks crazy. It looks ludicrous. So everyone here has been appointed. You've all been appointed. And, it, and, you know, and so the choice is ours about what we're going to do with that appointment and what we're going to put into it. So then this metaphor, this biblical metaphor, this is the diagram for the biblical metaphor. There is Jesus who is the true vine. There is the Father who is the vine dresser. There is the Father who prunes the branches, and we're going to be talking about that today. Then there's this idea of abiding, and that idea of abiding is very, 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 very uh, uh, similar to what it means to be in Christ, as Paul talks about it in almost all of his letters. Then there's this vine and branch dynamic, which, uh, which means that we are to produce fruit, and not just fruit, but much fruit. So, you know, then you go to this Matthew, you know, seed and sower text about you know, producing 40, 70, even 100 times as much. That's really what he's saying there. And that when we produce much fruit, we glorify the Father. And so this is kind of a startling thing. Really, if you think about it, if I'm to ask myself the question, exactly how much of my life glorifies the Father? When people see my life, do they, and what I do with my life, do they glorify the Father because of what they see? Ouch! I mean, but that's what he's saying here, that the fruit that we produce glorifies the Father. Maybe this is part of the problem for the church as a whole, not just this church, but the church as a whole is that the reason why people don't believe in God is they don't see the fruit produced by God in our lives. And then, in this much fruit thing that he wants us to produce, it's also the proof of our discipleship. You see how these diagrams help? It just sort of cuts to the chase. That, when we produce much fruit, then somebody's going to say, they must be a believer. I was just having a conversation with somebody yesterday who's, a, who's a, been in ministry for a long time, strong believer. <clears throat> Currently, they are out of ministry right now for a, a time period, and they're working in a kind of a non-Christian job. And 
uh, they were saying, I just, you know, I go there, I, I try to be as positive as I can be to do the things that, you know, I think I can do. None of them know that I'm an ordained minister, um, but I'm just waiting to see what can happen, you know, how I can use that. And, um, and so, you know, what's implied in what, he's, what he is saying there is that, um, is my life going to produce the kind of fruit that people will say, are you a Christian? Are you, like, you know, do you, do you know anything about ministry? He said not one person there knows anything about them in that way. So if you and I spend time in a place other than this room right here, would people conclude that you are a Christian and that they're so taken by the fact that you're a Christian that, and the work that comes from it that they actually glorify the Father because of it? I mean, I've heard people say, Look, I'm not a believer, but this person is a Christian. They're the real deal. I'm amazed at what they've done with their life. It's really kind of astounding. I remember I was watching, do you ever see Bill Maher on TV? You know, not a fan in a lot of ways. (coughs) But I remember a celebrity who's doing some work in northern Africa when uh, there was that terrible genocide taking place as well as a famine and all kind of stuff that was that was happening there. And they were talking about that particular kind of work, and Bill Maher was kind of um, denigrating uh, the church and Christians. Uh, and the guy stopped and said, no, wait, wait, wait. He said, if there's any great work going on in North Africa, it's because of what the churches are doing for those people. Now, he was not a believer. But there he was on national TV reporting about the fruit that was being produced by those churches in a truly horrible place. I don't know how hor- just how horrible you, you know it is, but it was a genocide. And they did incredibly horrible things to women and to children. To put it politely, they delighted in giving women mastectomies who had infant children so that they would watch their children starve to death because they could not feed them. That and many, many other kinds of things. But it was the church going into that darkness and being that kind of light and producing fruit that made it all the way back to national TV. We're on a place like on a TV program with Bill Maher that God is glorified. Then he goes on to say um, that if we abide in Christ, then we abide in the Father's love. Just as the Father has loved me, so I loved you. So if you abide in me, he's saying, then you are abiding in the love of the Father as well. So the love of the Father is ours if we abide in Christ. And that out of that obedience, then, we experience the joy of Christ. And he goes on to say, not only do you experience the joy of Christ... But your joy is made full. That when you do things for Christ, when you live faithfully on his behalf, then 
your joy is full. And again, many people here know what that's like. You do things for Christ and it's a joy. Uh, Your life is very fulfilled and you are blessed. And so finally... This idea of much fruit, that you're, the fruit that you produce is an abiding fruit. It's a fruit that lasts. Honestly, I got to tell you, I, I mean, I, and you know, this will sound so like typical or whatever like that, but I, I just, I continue to become, and it, it, I don't, I, a year ago I would have thought this was impossible, but the, the utter shallowness with which I see pop culture manifest itself on TV in the evening, the programs that they spend millions of dollars on to produce what they produce, um, and, um, and how is any of that enduring? It's not enduring. They're rewarded deeply for it here in this world, but it's not enduring. It's corrosive. It's acidic. It's destructive. It's all about false promises. It's about ego. All of those kinds of things. But I just wonder how much of my work is enduring. The fruit that you have produced in your life, how much of that is enduring? I think I mentioned this, but oftentimes when I do funerals, I will ask you know, them to do, answer three questions. And one of the, the final questions I ask them is, what is the person's legacy? The person that died, what is their legacy? What is something about their life that was so compelling that you want to see it continued in your life and others' lives? That it was just so moving and so powerful and so compelling that you think it should endure. It should last forever. And the truth of it is, Most of the funerals I do, most of the families can't say what was enduring about the person, what the legacy was. I mean, they come up with something, but it's not a legacy. So think about that for just a minute. If you were to pass away right now, What about your life would be so compelling that your family would want to keep it alive throughout the course of their life? That it's a kind of fruit that just abides. And then finally, um, that this idea of producing much fruit is by what is called divine fiat, divine command. So really, the production of fruit isn't an option for us. It's not an option. It's a command. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's, what, that's what the Lord, I mean, so that's kind of like the diagram. Uh, somebody else might come up with some of the things, but I think I'm pretty, pretty accurate on how you can diagram that, that particular text in a, in a helpful way. So we come to John uh, 15, and I'm just going to read the first couple of passages because that's where I'm going to spend most of my time this morning. And so, uh, we, you know, so here we have where Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, 
he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And so um, I want to spend some time then talking about other texts that speak to this. So, you know, I was thinking about this this morning. Do you remember how I spent a lot of time on Isaiah 53 last summer? And that Isaiah, Isaiah 53 was one of those seminal texts in the Old Testament that, I mean, it's the gospel in the Old Testament. And in many respects, so much of the Old Testament could be coalesced around Isaiah 53. It's that significant of a passage. I think you could almost do this with John 15. That there's so there's there's that is so full of meaning and so comprehensive uh, in its uh, application. You so when I read other texts, I can I can see in those texts the principles of John 15. Now I don't want to overstate the case, but it just I'm just saying to you that this passage in John 15 addresses so many of the important principles and themes in the New Testament just in that passage. Now, when we interpret Scripture, there are a couple of rules. And, you know, you'll get different rules from different people, but these are pretty standard. So as we understand, try to understand John 15, uh, and I want to use other passages of Scripture to support it, I want to, imply, I want to apply at least four, if, two if not three rules, and they are the following. The first rule for exegetical interpretation of Scripture is what? Context. So you might find this to be helpful because you may have an argument or a discussion with somebody or debate, and, um, and they will take a, a passage out of context to make their point. And we call that eisegesis, not exegesis. But the first rule for biblical interpretation is context. What does this verse say within the text, the overall text of that particular sentence, that particular paragraph, that particular chapter, that particular book? What does it say? The context is key. So, in fact, uh, one of the great scholars of our time, D.A. Carson, says, a biblical text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. So, can we go? Can you guys? Can you move that? Uh, yeah, keep going if you would. Keep going. I don't know if it'll. All the way past the. Yep. Yep. Keep going. There we go. Oh, go back one. There we go. A biblical text without a context. So if I take a biblical text and I take it out of the context, then it's because I have a different plan for that text than what was intended. Does this make sense to you all? Okay. So that's like like rule number one. So this is what we call proof texting. And so proof texting the Bible is basically citing a verse to support our own position, often by removing it from the context even though the verse might have nothing to do with our position. And in fact, we, in effect, we make the Bible say what we want it to say. Now, I've encountered this many, many times over the course of the year, and if you have any conversation with people, you will too. They will, they will take 
biblical text. And really, you can make the Bible say just about anything you want it to say if you use it, if you, if you proof text. Now, the second rule for exegetical interpretation is Scripture interpreting Scripture. So is the passage of, that I'm reading here consistent with what other Scripture says about, about that topic or about that thing or about that passage? Is it, is, because that's, we, so Scripture is not divided. Scripture is not, uh, it does not contradict itself. Scripture ought to interpret Scripture. So somebody uses a particular text in, in a conversation that you have with them, and they use it in a way that runs counter to another text, then you should challenge that. And I've done that many times in the past as well. Now, I don't have this here, but I'll just tell you the third way in which we interpret Scripture is, how has this passage of Scripture been interpreted in the tradition of the church? How did the early church fathers interpret it? How do the great theologians and Bible teachers throughout the course of the history of the church interpret it? Which is why I have some concern about what is taking place in the church today among many, not all, but many of the social justice crowd. Because many of them will say to you that for 2,000 years we've gotten it wrong. That it wasn't about it wasn't about us coming to faith in Jesus Christ and repenting of our sins and, take, and, and those kinds of things. It's really, about, it's really about justice. It's really about just feeding the poor and freeing the oppressed. It's really just about that. And there have been some seminal biblical scholars in recent memory who have moved over to that camp. But they have violated this historical context about how the church has always interpreted those particular texts. So, which is, one, again, one reason why I take the time that I take to teach Sunday morning about these particular things, so that you know. Now, the principles found in the vine and the branches are found throughout the New Testament scripture, underscoring their importance for all believers. So, um, so this week, then, I'm going to provide for you some other biblical examples for branches connected to the vine and how they are providentially arranged and pruned. So, uh, if you can move to that slide further on down, that would, yeah. Um, Yeah, we can start with that. That's good. So, Jesus said, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me he prunes that it may bear fruit. So, here we see that the vine dresser prunes us and the vine dresser is the father, and that providentially works or prunes in the life of the believer to pr- produce fruit optimally. <coughs> so the question becomes, excuse me, <coughs> why does God prune us? I mean, if you've worked in a garden, like with roses or bushes or, you know, some certain fruit plants, whatever, when you go to prune them, do they like slap at your hands and say, you know, why are you pruning me? But you prune because you know something about that plant and why it needs to be pruned so that it will grow bigger, stronger, better, and produce more. So God knows certain things about us 
that need to be pruned, eliminated, taken away, uh, because those things inhibit our ability to, to grow, be stronger, and produce more fruit. So we are pruned because we are imperfect. Imperfect action can only produce imperfect results. So the goal then has to be to reduce the amount of imperfection in our life so that we can produce less imperfect results. And some Bonnie said sometimes, I'll say usually, she's being kind, uh, it's painful. It can be very painful. Now, this is all related to... And this comes primarily out of uh, the reform context, but what's called the great doctrine of total depravity. That's where this comes from. I mean, so this is how we've articulated that particular truth, largely throughout the history of the church. And what that means is, the Bible teaches as a result of the fall of man, every part of man, his mind, will, emotions, and flesh, have been corrupted by sin. In essence, sin affects all areas of our being, including who we are and what we do. So it's like you take a pitcher of clear water and you put red dye in it. You shake it up. What part of that water is there no red dye? It's throughout all the water, right? Now, it is possible over time, if you run pure water through that, that eventually it will become diluted to the point where the red dye is replaced with pure water. And so that's really God's project in our life now, is to replace the corruption and sin in our life with his presence, with his image. So it goes on to say, um, our depravity penetrates to the very core of our being so that everything is tainted by sin. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags before a holy God, says Isaiah. So there is no one who does good, no, not one, says the psalmist in Psalm 14. The Bible teaches that we sin because we are sinners by nature. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. And so even though the Holy Spirit lives in us over the course of our lifetime, it's his project. We call this sanctification to work in our life to make us less, more and more perfect and less sinful. Now, Paul talks about this in Romans 7, 18. This is all part of the pruning thing. So he says here, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Now, has that ever happened to you? Where you had the desire to do what was right, but for whatever reason you didn't have the ability to carry it out? And then after you did what you knew you shouldn't have done, You just did this face palm or, you know, this repudiation. Why, why, why do I let that happen? You ever do that? 
That's exactly what he's talking about here. Why did I say it that way? Why did I do that particular thing? When am I ever going to learn? For I do not do what the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. This is the Apostle Paul. It's not some Yahoo who's never, you know, who's been a Christian for six weeks or whatever. It's the most well-educated man in the history of the Christian church saying this. So do you think if it's true of him, that it might be true of us? I think that's probably true. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. This is this idea of total depravity. Then he concludes, verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now some of you have heard this, some of you have not. But there was a form of torture uh, that the Romans used to do where they would take a dead body and they would tie it hand to hand, neck to neck, waist to waist, knee to knee, ankle to ankle, to a living person. And you had to live out the rest of your days with that dead body tied to you face to face while it rotted and you became corrupt and filled with disease. And the Apostle Paul, many scholars think, is alluding to that kind of a torture. And so when he says, what a wretched man that I am, who will release me from this body of death? He's, talk, he's, he's likening sin like that dead body. Now, here's a question for you, all of us. Do you think that if you had a dead body tied to you in that manner, that it might affect the quality of your life? But what would be even crazier is if you encountered a person with a body tied to them in that fashion and they thought it was normal. That it was, it's not too bad. It's it's okay. I mean, think about how that would interfere with every element, every aspect of life. And then think about how sin in our life has impacted every element and every facet of our life. And that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about in that way. So, the work of Christ in us, so that we can produce more fruit, because like if we have a dead body tied to us, then it's going to be difficult for us to produce fruit. We might be able to do something, <coughs> but not a lot. And the more of that body that's, that's, uh, that's cut away, the more functional, the more we can produce with our life. Philippians 2, verses 12 through 13 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, this is that we used to say, 
uh, when we were like teenagers or whatever, if the pastor come around, we'd say, quick, act saved, you know, uh, so that just we'd just be like joking. But it just seemed like that when we were around the pastor or some, you know, mature, we'd had to, we, we tried to behave better. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. So, look, you're doing well in my presence, but now that I'm leaving, I want you even more so to do better in my absence. So, it's, it's easier to act Christian when you're in a church. It's more challenging to act like a Christian when you're in the workplace. It's easier to act like a Christian when you're in a Bible study. It's more difficult when you're with your family. And so that's what he's saying here. So work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So what, what he's not saying to, to, to you or me, look, you need to work for your salvation. You need to work out your salvation. Your salvation needs to be perfected. So work it out with fear and trembling, understanding the, exactly what Christ has done for you and me. What it cost him. What it might have cost you. For it is God who works in you. So <clears throat> there isn't a person in this room that God is not working in their life. Everyone in this room, God is omnipresent. He is omniscient. He is omnipotent. And there's not a person in here that because all three of those things, that he is not speaking to us on a regular basis to work in us, to will. So we call that guidance, illumination, conviction, That he works in us to, to will and to work, therefore to do, to his good pleasure. That we want to do for him to give him glory and to experience his joy. Does this make sense to you all? So what does it say? If throughout the course of history, in particular in our time, if God is omnipresent, omnipotent, and and omniscient, that he can know exactly how to reveal himself, to work in us, to will, and to act uh, for his good pleasure, and yet, and yet, and yet, it just doesn't seem to have the effect it should have. It must be that there's resistance. It must be that there's resistance. Because God's a pretty compelling person. If one young man can stand up and heed what the Holy Spirit says to him in uh, Asbury College, (coughs) and because he did, that becomes the ignition point out of which this revival thing, from which people from all over the world want to be a part of, Imagine if most of, more of us were more open to how God works in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us, and it's implied here, so that we can run better with endurance the race that has been set before us, that God has set for everyone in this room a race. Everyone in this room has a race that has been set before them. And um, wouldn't it be great if most of us ran our race like, uh, <clears throat> who was that, uh, that Jamaican uh, uh, Bolt, uh, Usain Bolt? Anybody, everybody, anybody ever here watch Usain Bolt run? <clears throat> Honestly, it looks like he has jets. But if we could just run more like that <laughs> instead of really and this is me too i mean it's like you know um it's like i'm one of the three stooges you know just like i'm bumping around in a room or something like that it's just not there's no comparison and i'm just glad god is so patient when i get distracted about the kind of race that he has marked out for every for me as well as everyone in this room so the question becomes then how does god prune us and so I talked about why God prunes us. I talked about why God prunes us. And the why is a very serious thing. And that there isn't anyone that's exempt. That we all have this race. That God is always at work giving us to will and to work. All of that is in play. Everyone here. And so I guess what I want to leave for all of us as we, as, you know, as we begin to, you know, as we leave here today is um, what would you say, what would you say for you? What would you say are those things that get in the way of your growth and your ability to produce fruit? What sin entangles? What part of the dead body are we unwilling to let go of, to have cut away? Really, there probably are people out there that when somebody says, let me cut that dead body off you, you're like, eh, you know, there's a part of it I kind of enjoy. You think, well, that's crazy. That's exactly right. If you read in the Old Testament, how God spoke, especially to the Canaanites and to the Israelites when they were in uh, extreme disobedience. He, he's just throwing his hands up. And what is wrong with you people? How many of you have ever had a dog? How many of you have ever had a dog that when it threw up, it went back to what it threw up? You're like, what is wrong with you? It made you sick. Now you want to eat it again, and you're going to get sick again, right? Well, the proverb is, as a dog returns to its own vomit, so a man returns to his sin. <coughs> that there are certain sins in our lives that we just don't want to give up. 
And those sins cling to us like their dead body. And they impede our ability to run a race. They impede our ability to produce fruit. They impede our ability to give glory to God. They impede our ability to have true joy in our life. They impede in all of that. So I'm just saying, maybe this week, we should spend some time praying to God, say, Lord, what part of the dead body have I been reluctant, have I been resistant for you to prune off of me? So spend some time this week thinking about that. What part of that dead body have we been resistant to God to have pruned from us? I mean, not to be macabre, but if we saw a person walking around with a dead, with an arm wrapped around, a, a dead arm wrapped, we think, ooh, right? And they go, I, I, kinda, I like it. It's not too bad, really. It's not. You think, you're nuts. I think the Lord looks at us like that sometimes when we hang on to sin that, dis- that could destroy us, that gets in the way. So, now next week, I'm going to be talking about how God prunes. How God prunes. And I thought I would get to that this week, but I, I just I couldn't. There was just too much. But don't you want to know about how God prunes? Yeah. Because you know why you need to know? So you can recognize it when it happens. <laughs> right? It's, it's not a bad thing to recognize when we're being pruned. It's a good thing. 